very pleased to know what they think they're doing. I think they're all insane. Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. As always, good to be back. If you're getting value out of these, please spread the word. Share it on Instagram, uh, Facebook, Twitter, whatever social platform you use. Let some friends know about it. That would, as always, be much appreciated. So if you haven't already seen the one and only Kevin Rudd, Kevin07, Ruddy, Rudstar, whatever you want to call him, is back in the press after he has called for a royal commission into the Murdoch media monopoly, as he claims it. Now, for international listeners, if you don't know who Kevin Rudd is, he was Australia's Prime Minister from 2007 until 2010, and also briefly in 2013. Here's a little introduction. I take it you'd like me to sing. This is the office of the Prime Minister. My precious. My precious. Ah! This fucking language. He just complicates it so much, you know? I sing like a cow. So why exactly is Kevin Rudd asking for a royal commission into the Murdoch media monopoly? Today I'm speaking to you as a former Prime Minister of Australia, passionate about our country's future. And today I'm officially launching an official petition to the Australian Parliament, calling on the Parliament to establish a royal commission into the abuse of media monopoly in Australia, in particular by the Murdoch media, and to make recommendations to maximise media diversity ownership for the future lifeblood of our democratic system. You see, the truth is Murdoch has become a cancer, an arrogant cancer on our democracy. Rudd cites four reasons for this. The first... Number one, it's the sheer concentration of Murdoch's media ownership. 70% of our print readership is owned by Murdoch. In my state of Queensland, which swings so many federal election outcomes, Murdoch owns virtually each and every one of the newspapers up here. Okay, so does Rupert Murdoch really own 70%? of our print newspapers? Well, the answer is almost. According to a Sydney Morning Herald Herald article, and by the way, I'm going to reference a few different articles here. I'm not going to reference the titles, but they are, as always, included in the show notes or the description. So if you you want to take a look at those, you can. So according to this Sydney Morning Herald article, a 2016 study by academics Franco Pampandera and Rodney Tiffin on media ownership and concentration said News Corp owned about 65% of print newspaper readership across Australia. Now, you might be wondering how many people even consume print. Well, according to a Roy Morgan survey, only 25% of Australians actually use printed newspapers as their main news source, and that's down from 31.5% in 2018. So what happens when you account for online? Well, according to an ACCC report, which uh, was based on the Digital Platforms Inquiry, The print news sector, now the print slash online news sector, is particularly concentrated, it says. Market share analysis published by Ibis World suggests that News Corp Australia and Nine Entertainment Co. uh, control 
56.5% and 18.7% of the newspaper publishing market, respectively. This data shows that Seven West Media is the next largest publisher with 6.7%. However, in terms of cross-platform readership, uh, Roy Morgan survey data actually says that the Sydney Morning Herald, which is owned by Nine Fairfax, has the highest cross-platform audience with 8.1 million Australians. Uh, next in line is another Fairfax, uh, Nine Fairfax paper, The Age, with 5.4 million Australians. Next is News Corp's Daily Telegraph in third place with 4.7 million and Following that is the Herald Sun in fourth place with 4.3 million Australians. And then the National Broad Street, the Australian, is in fifth place with a cross-platform audience of 4 million to fill out the top five. So that actually was quite interesting, seeing nine Fairfax papers have a higher cross-platform audience compared to Murdoch papers. Now, it's also worth noting that if you just look at online news sources, Murdoch doesn't dominate the top 10 listings. Again, according to that ACCC report, if you look at the top 10 news sites from Australian website users, uh, it, it differs slightly per age group from uh, the aged 13 to 27-year category. News Corp only has two of the top 10 papers. Uh, and then for all other categories, News Corp only has three. So the idea that News Corp is this Universal Monopoly, Australians only ever get their news from News Corp, doesn't hold up. Now, you might want to be a bit more nuanced about this and carve out an exceptions for regional Australians who, according to that ACCC report, actually exhibit more traditional media preferences. So they prefer things like radio and print as a ahead of online sources, which is something to keep in mind. Next, you might be wondering, what about TV, radio, and the ABC? Again, going back to that Sydney Morning Herald article, uh, it points out that News Corp says it reaches uh, 16 million Australians each month, uh, but when in comparison to the Nine Network through all platforms, it is able to reach 12 million people. And then finally, looking at the Australian broadcaster, according to a 2019 report, the ABC is able to reach... 68.3% of the population, which works out to roughly 17 million, so slightly higher reach than News Corp. Now, another concern or counter-argument that people raise when people talk about the 70% Murdoch ownership is, well, aren't Facebook and Google more dominant? Again, going back to that ACCC report, uh, and again, if you're not, if you're only listening to this and not watching it on YouTube, you won't be able to see it, but I'll explain it here. There's a figure that looks at the share of online time spent on selected websites from February 2019, and it finds that actually Google has the highest share with 20.5%, next being Facebook with all its platforms at 18.6%. Following that is Microsoft at 3.4%, Snapchat at 2.3%, Apple at 2.1%, and then a combination of news outlets including uh, 10, 7 West, News Corp, ABC, and 9 Fairfax only have 2.3%. And then outside of all of that, 50.8% of all online activity occurs on other websites. So I think that is important to know. It's it's also worth considering that the fact that this ACCC report 
was commissioned to look into the platforms of Google and Facebook indicates that the our competition regulator may deem that those big tech flat platforms pose more of a monopoly threat than News Corp. Uh, and to Kevin Rudd's defense, he in fact acknowledges this in his initial submission, citing that big tech platforms do pose a threat to our democracy in addition to News Corp. So that is worth bearing in mind. Now, you might be wondering, but don't Google and platform, uh, sorry, platforms like Google and Facebook simply allow for distribution of independent voices? Now, the ACCC does acknowledge something to this effect. It says that uh, alongside the introduction of the digital native news sources discussed below, uh, the internet has increased the plurality of journalism available online, reducing the impact of high concentration in the traditional print now print slash online sector. Now, I do think that there is something to this. You look at someone like Friendly Geordies, an independent YouTuber. He started off as a one-man show. Now I believe he has a he has a team. But Friendly Geordies has almost half a million subscribers to his YouTube channel. When when you compare that to you know the highest uh, print readership in in Australia, which is the Australian, which has roughly five hundred and five hundred and sixty thousand print readers to its Saturday edition. You have an independent voice like Friendly Geordies who almost has the same viewership as one of the only national Australian paper, again, owned by Murdoch. However, you can't deny that Murdoch does does have some dominance. Uh, the ABC, sorry, the ACCC labels our print slash online news sector as particularly con- concentrated and uh, we do have one of the highest concentrated media markets in the world. Uh, according to um, an article in The Conversation, an international media concentration research project led by Professor Ali Noam of Columbia University found that Australian newspaper circulation was the most concentrated of 26 countries surveyed and among the most concentrate- concentrated in the democratic world. So. We do have this really high concentration and that that high concentration is a problem given that Murdoch's media share allows it the ability to set the parameters of the debate. So Kevin Wright actually explains this in an interview with Friendly Geordies. Let's take a listen. So it not only sets the tone, the parameters, I think your nice word is the cloud uh, of the... Um of the national conversation and what's on the agenda and what's not. It also feeds out a, a set of memes, um, which is labor economy bad, mm. um, c- conservatives economy responsible, <laughs> um, labor terrorists bad, uh, conservatives smash foreigners good. Um, and, uh, Climate change, irresponsible action. Um, you know, it's yeah. these memes yeah. are seeded through and they bounce out through the radio networks, the television networks, and you're answering the question even if a non-Murdoch uh, journalist uh, is, is, uh, una- is uh, not fully aware of uh, why they're framing the question in a particular way in the first place. 
Now, this does resonate me. The The fact that the terms of the debate were being so poorly set was one of my motivations to start up this very podcast. But I don't think it's a universal law that will always apply. We need to um, consider that News Corp only gets this agenda-setting ability through its market share. And if independent voices and competing news outlets can take subscribers away from News Corp and bring it to other sources, News Corp will inevitably lose its market share, which allows it to set the agenda. So I don't think that this is a given. Moving on to claim number two. Over the last decade... In 18 out of the last 18 federal and state elections, Murdoch has viciously campaigned in support of one side of politics, the Liberal National Party, and viciously campaigned against the Australian Labor Party. There's no such thing as a level playing field anymore. Now, critics and News Corp journos have actually pushed back against this, citing News Corp's endorsement of Kevin Rudd himself in the 2007 federal election. What he did instead was he cozied up to the Murdoch press. He he did everything he could to try and get uh, positive coverage. And ahead of the 2007 election, uh, the majority of News Corp publications did support him over John Howard uh, to be the next Prime Minister. That's something he doesn't acknowledge. He says in his campaign that News Corp always supports the coalition. Well, that's not the case. The Australian newspaper... Uh, the, the Daily Telegraph at the time supported him, not uh, John Howard, ahead of that 2007 election. But it is worth noting that Rudd only secured Murdoch's support after courting him. Uh, according to a piece by Kevin Rudd himself in the Sydney Morning Herald, he says, They cry hypocrisy, noting that I sought Murdoch's support in 2007. You betcha. If you were the Labour leader, you try to reduce the level of bias as well, even from 75 to 25 for the Conservatives to something approaching balance. Although the record shows Murdoch's papers did everything they could over 2007 to destroy my leadership with one confected scandal after another. You also have Tony Blair, British Labour Party leader, who did the same thing in the run-up to the 1997 UK election by flying all the way to Hayman Island to court Rupert Murdoch's support. This is something that Rupert Murdoch even admits under oath in the Leveson Inquiry. This relates to what happened on the 17th of March, 1997. This is Mr Neil. Yes. Blair went the final mile for Rupert in an article for The Sun right at the start of the election campaign. He flew the union flag and wrote in highly Eurosceptical tones, Rupert was delighted. Were you delighted? I don't remember, but I would have been. He flew the union flag and wrote in highly Eurosceptical tones. Yes. And then he, that's you, saw no reason to delay his endorsement for Labour any longer especially since all the polls made Blair overwhelming favourite to be the next Prime Minister anyway. And then the following day, we have the endorsement. That endorsement was your decision, wasn't it, Mr Murdoch? Well, it certainly would have been with my approval. Some would say, looking at this, you, you had extracted really as much as you could from Mr Blair in terms of policy promises... He'd gone a considerable distance in your direction. You you assessed he'd gone as far as he was ever going to go, so you endorsed him. That's right, isn't it? 
Yeah, I think so. You know, I don't think it all followed in this way, so logically, but yes. But on the other hand, one can't help but note that the ability of someone like Rupert Murdoch to successfully sway the election is only based on his ability to connect and understand the pulse of the voting public. There's no way Murdoch would have been able to create such successful newspapers throughout his um, his career if he didn't have that knack for understanding what the public wanted and when the public wanted a change of leadership. And it's also worth pointing out that despite Murdoch's dominance, Labour parties who Murdoch doesn't support have been able to win elections, such as Dan Andrews in Victoria and Palaszczuk in Queensland. But you have to bear in mind that this is actually much harder for those parties to do so when, in fact, you have Murdoch has such media dominance. Back to Kevin07 with claim number three. Number three, why does he do it? Murdoch in fact, has loss-making newspapers, but he keeps them and buys more of them with a single purpose in mind, which is to maximise his political power in the country in defence of his ideological interests, like climate change denial, as well as to prosecute his commercial interests, as we've seen with the National Broadband Network. From a competition law standpoint, Murdoch's loss-making would only be an issue if it was done with the intent the likely effect or the effect of uh, substantially lessening competition. Now, this is something that naturally I'd leave to the ACCC or the courts to decide. But the second component, I believe, is much more interesting, which is Murdoch's use of market power to gain political influence. Now, you might be wondering, how does someone like Murdoch gain political power when he's not directly writing for the papers? Well, there's a monthly article that does a good job of explaining this. I quote, Andrew Neil worked for Murdoch for 11 years as editor of the Sunday Times and was in general treated respectfully. In his full disclosure, he describes his relations with Murdoch like this. Rupert has an uncanny knack of being there even when he is not. When I did not hear from him and knew his intention was elsewhere, he was still uppermost in my mind. End quote. It goes on to say that many former Murdoch editors tell much the same story. If they wished to survive, they needed to internalize Murdoch's worldview. So that's how Murdoch would be able to influence his editors. But how does he actually influence policies? Well, there are a few examples of this. Uh, One is the Hawke-Keating duo uh, who approved Murdoch's takeover of the Herald and Weekly Times. Um, Again, in that same monthly article. Uh, It says, as Colleen Ryder has documented recently in her Fairfax, The Rise and Fall, Hawke's treasurer, Paul Keating, was even more enthusiastic about the takeover, in part for the same reasons as Hawke, in part because Fairfax had raised awkward questions about Keating's relations with the property developer Warren Anderson, and in part because as a radical reformer, Keating wanted to inject it into the economy the energy of new money represented by Murdoch and Kerry Packer, and to destroy moribund old money interests represented for him by both the hated Fairfax enemy and the moribund Melbourne's gentleman clubs he thought was running the Herald and Weekly Times. 
Keating was not merely a passive supporter of the Murdoch takeover by secretly providing Murdoch with inside information about the government's proposed new media laws, where the ownership of television and newspapers was to be separated, Keating actively sought to bury the Herald and Weekly Times, to thwart Fairfax's ambitions, and to facilitate News Corp's domination of the Australian press. You also have the MBN, which Rudd believes that Murdoch's criticism of that uh, policy, the National Broadband Network for international, li- international Listeners, was designed to protect one of Murdoch's other businesses, being the pay TV service Foxtel, against new streaming competition such as Netflix such as Netflix. Uh, He also cites that the News Corp statement to US shareholders, which mentions the threat of streaming streaming services as evidence of this. Um, And he also notes that when Turnbull um, hosted hosted the launch of his MBN, that this was actually hosted in Fox Studios, which at, at the very least raises some eyebrows. Now, it's worth noting that not everyone agrees with this conspiracy theory, uh, Murdoch and others deny this. Uh, Murdoch says that his business would benefit from fast broadband by getting Foxtel programs into everyone's homes. Uh, Turnbull, Turnbull argues that even his hybrid MBN, which Murdoch endorsed, has decimated Foxtel's business uh, much earlier than Rudd's MBN would have. Uh, Rudd even admits that uh, Foxtel lost subscribers under Turnbull's MBN. And even Rudd concedes that as a pro-market politician, he was shocked that Ken Henry suggested he create the MBN as as a government company. Kevin Rudd says in an opinion piece in the Financial Review, I vividly remember the day when Ken stunned us all with his panel's recommendation. For a pro-market guy like me, the decision to establish a new state-owned enterprise to commence the single largest infrastructure project in Australian history was not taken lightly. However counterintuitive, the sheer weight of evidence confirmed this was the right choice. So if you have here someone like Kevin Rudd saying that even he, as a pro-market politician, was concerned or a little bit surprised about the MBN policy proposal from Ken Henry, then is it that ridiculous to say that Murdoch and his editors, who are even more pro-market than Kevin Rudd, would also criticize the policy? So that is something to think about. Um, at the very least, these are the arguments pro and against. Uh, you would say that if there is a conflict of interest on the part of Murdoch, perhaps he should be a little less forceful with his opinions or less, at least the editors should be a little less forceful in their opinions. Perhaps. I don't know exactly where that argument takes us, though. Um, but putting aside the MBN, you also have an example of influence as the Turnbull ousting. The reality is that the when the coup occurred, when Dutton and the you know the right wing group uh, that supported him, Abbott and others, and their friends in the Murdoch media and you know the right wing media generally, uh, they overthrew my government and overthrew my prime ministership, not because they thought I'd lose an election, but because they thought I would win it. When asked what role Murdoch played. Malcolm Turnbull had this to say. Well, I mean, Rupert Murdoch, as I relate in the book and in a conversation I had with Murdoch, I mean, Murdoch acknowledges that one of his most senior executives was part of the Abbott, um, you know, plan to bring down the government with the goal of sending us into opposition so that Abbott could come back as leader after the 
election and bring the party back to victory in 2022. Now, this just describing that sounds in, unhinged, doesn't it? But that was Abbott's agenda, and as Rupert acknowledged to me, it had the support of one of his most senior and most influential editorial executives. And I think it went a lot further than that. So it was it was crazed and it was part of Alan Jones's agenda. I mean, they tried to foment a coup at the end of 2017. And I set out all the evidence for that uh, in the book. You know, it is, these were people that were a foreign company controlled by foreign nationals was conspiring to overthrow the Prime Minister of Australia. Now, those are the... You've got it from Murdoch's own admissions in, in, the, in the book. What we're talking about is the tactics of the last week and not the substantive issue as to why we regard it as OK or acceptable that elements of the media conspire with the right wing of the Liberal Party to overthrow the Prime Minister in circumstances where our political position was in very good shape. We were, we were, we were just behind Labor on the published polls and ahead of them on our own polls. And on any view, we were, I mean, you look at what Rupert Murdoch said to, to Kerry Stokes. So Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Stokes, you know, media proprietor, owner of the West Australian and the Seven Network, goes to see Rupert and Rupert says, we've got to get rid of Malcolm. And Stokes says, why? And he says he can't, Rupert says he can't beat Shorten. And Stokes says, well, that's not right. He's, you know, he's way ahead of him as preferred PM. He's, you know, only just behind on the published polls. He's in, in a very good position. To which Murdoch says three years of Labor wouldn't be so bad. So think about that. Is so it... so determined were they to get rid of a Prime Minister they did not own, because this is all about power, remember, because the one thing those plutocrats knew, the billionaire media proprietors knew, was that I did not belong to them. So I don't think it was my concern about climate change or my support of same-sex marriage or other, you know, allegedly smaller liberal agendas, I think when you boil it down, and I say this, you know, approaching my 66th birthday and having spent much of my life dealing with billionaires of one kind or another, I think this was ultimately about power. They wanted to have, again, a prime minister who they felt they had some control over, they had an ownership of, and they had, and they wanted to feel that as they had done with Abbott that they were in charge. Now, the claim that Murdoch called Kerry Stokes has been backed up by both sources from the ABC and the Australian Financial Review. Murdoch and his allies, for their part, deny that they have this much power and that, in fact, Turnbull and the Liberal Party were to blame. Now, of course, a saga like this has many more details that I'm not able to go into in this particular episode. But suffice to say... Do you not consider it concerning that you have two media moguls having private conversations about who should be the next prime minister, which prime minister they like, and then immediately after that, their respective papers running front page headlines 
endorsing a particular candidate. At the very least, that should raise some eyebrows. That should be of concern to people who care about democracy. But in saying all of this, you have to also bear in mind that Murdoch doesn't always get his way. According to a Sydney Morning Herald article, the one rule that News Corp has wanted removed for years, anti-siphoning, uh, the mandatory requirement for certain sport matches to appear on free-to-air television, has never been removed. Foxtel, owned by News Corp, wants the laws to be relaxed to allow it to be able to run sport matches exclusively, a move that would gain its subscribers. So they've never been able to get everything that they want out of the political process, which is important to keep in mind. But now turning back to Kevin 07 with claim number four. And the final reason we need this Royal Commission is the sheer arrogance and swagger and bullying behaviour by Murdoch and his editors against anybody, anybody who stands up against him or has a different point of view. Now, there are a few different examples of this. Uh, You have, going back to the UK, former PM Sir John Major revealing that Murdoch tried to change his mind regarding his EU policy. In the dinner, it became apparent in discussion that uh, Mr Murdoch said that he really didn't like our European policies. This was no surprise to me, that he didn't like our European policies and... uh, He wished me to change our European policies. If we couldn't change our European policies, his papers could not and would not support the Conservative government. As I recall, he used the word we when referring to his newspapers. Uh, He didn't make the usual nod towards editorial independence. It is not very often someone sits in front of a Prime Minister and says to a Prime Minister, I would like you to change your policy. And if you don't change your policy, um, my organisation cannot support you. You have the phone hacking scandal in the UK. It was a nothing story, a tabloid tale involving a member of the British royal family, but its publication in late 2005 and the suspicion that the reporter got the story by hacking into voicemail messages on the subject's mobile phone started an investigation that by 2011 laid bare a political scandal that reached into multiple British institutions and painted a picture of a news organization so powerful that those institutions, including Parliament, police, and the rest of the British news media, dared not take it on. Now, it's one thing for the Murdoch phone-tapping scandal to incriminate people working for News Corp, but what's more troubling is that the bullying and intimidation of News Corp, as Rudd alludes to, is the very thing that pressured officials not to touch it for some time. As soon as you start looking at the crime, then you say, well, how come they got away with that crime? So in a small way, you look at the press regulator. So they did nothing about it. Then you look at the police. They did nothing about it. And then the next thing is you you look into the most important area, which is government. A long history of our elected governments, these supposedly democratic governments, allowing Rupert Murdoch and his network to influence them in a way that ordinary voters have no chance of, of, of exercising that kind of an influence. And you, and you just, you take that lovely little idea we came up with once upon a time about one man or woman, one vote, this government works for us, and you put it in the waste bin because the media mogul has come in. He's the guy with the influence. You're, what you're looking at quite often in this sequence of events is a desire not to get into a nasty fight with this very, very powerful news organisation. And if you look at that fear, it's the same where government is concerned as where police is concerned. Part of it is individual fear. 
that this newspaper might come in and expose the sex lives of the senior officers. And then, apart from that, there's an organisational fear that if these newspapers turn against us, they can make every day a crisis. They can just destabilise us. And you put those two together, the individual fear and the organisational fear. And, and it generates what I call in the book a passive power. That Rupert Murdoch and his people don't have to say to the police, back off or else we'll hurt you. The police have already got the message. Let's, let's just not get into a fight with these people. And so, effectively, they become above the law, which is really quite a serious problem. And of course, you shouldn't paint with a broad brush. What happened to News of the World doesn't automatically apply to an institution like the Herald Sun or the Australian, but it does go to show the power behind the Murdoch press in Australia too. Uh, You have Kevin Rudd in The Guardian saying that, you know, time and time again in Cabinet, I would raise the need to fully take on News uh, Limited as a political force in our country. Uh, The entire Cabinet, including Julia Gillard, would say, you can't do that. They will just destroy us. That's where we have got to uh, when an entire government thinks it's so powerless in dealing with a force like that. Now, a little bit further on, uh, he asks, you know, why don't politicians speak out? Because they're frightened, he says, uh, because the organization has the capacity for comprehensive retribution. In addition to this, you also have the brutal headlines that the Murdoch Press ran in the run-up to the 2013 election. Have a few of them here. There was, um, it's a ruddy mess. Kick this mob out. I know nothing. Uh, Send in the clowns. Uh, Dead Kev bounce. Rudd's bully boy. Kevin deadly sins. Does this guy ever shut up? The long goodbye, Rudd free zone, Tony's time, the circus is over. So just an absolute brutally coordinated, concerted attack from several Murdoch outlets trying to kick Rudd out, which eventually was successful. Now, you could, of course, say that Rudd and Gillard caused Labour's own demise in the run-up to the 2013 election. There's a high chance that this would have happened anyway. But at the very least, maybe Australian citizens want to say, do we want the Murdoch Press, which owns, what, 65% of our print newspapers, to be able to run such aggressively hostile headlines that potentially has an influence on the election? So ultimately, what do I think of this? I think, yes, we need more independent voices. Yes, we need more nonpartisan reporting. Yes, we need more voices to crowd out the agenda setting of one organization. Perhaps Rudd and Turnbull themselves can put their hands into their deep pockets and fund an alternative news source that can run in competition against against the Murdoch press. Uh, There is something that... something inside me that is quite skeptical about a royal commission or some type of government regulation to combat the alleged evil of the Murdoch press. It it, it won't actually, by asking for a commission into more diversity, doesn't automatically give you more diversity. You need to physically go out and do something. You need to create a media outlet. You need to create a podcast. You need to create an audience that runs in competition with Murdoch. And if the Murdoch is a monopoly, that is by definition cumbersome, slow and failing to serve part of its customers, then doesn't that speak to the huge market opportunity that is being left in the wake of the Murdoch monopoly? Something for everyone to think about. 
So what do I expect from this? I don't think we're going to get a royal commission. It doesn't seem like both parties would support it. At the very least, we're going to get a Senate inquiry, which I think was announced a couple of days ago. Um, But ultimately, what we need to keep in mind is that any regulatory action, any outcome that comes from this needs to balance two competing interests. On the one hand, putting aside questions of monopoly, you have Murdoch's valid exercise of his press freedom to readers who, through their own free choice, buy Murdoch papers, even if you disagree with the contents of what Murdoch produces. Uh, an example of that would be the the coverage of an issue like climate change. But then on the other hand, you need to also balance the Murdoch's use of this legitimate power to illegitimately sway political outcomes and policies. No one believes that policies or political outcomes derive their legitimacy from a media mogul. They obviously should come from the voters. And I think we all have a vested interest in stamping out crony capitalism, no matter how difficult it would be to do so in this case, when the politicians rely so heavily on the Murdoch media empire. And on that note, that's where I'm going to end today's episode. As always, I hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you next time. I think they're all insane. And one final thing, if you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word and let your friends and family know about it. And also, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe, and if you're watching on YouTube, hit the like button and notification bell. See you next time.